Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms with us today. We are so grateful for you. I mean, where would any of us be without our moms, right? Well, we wouldn't be here, that's for sure. We owe a lot to our moms just for having us, but we owe them so much more than that because of all that they have done for us when we were small and so dependent on them, and all that they continue to do for us even as we are grown and are less dependent, more independent from them. And it is good to have one special day set aside to honor all the moms in our lives. I know I am really blessed to have a mom who loved and cared for me all the while I was growing up and she was raising me. And I'm so lucky that she is still alive and such a loving mother even to this day. I remember when I was young how she would physically care for me, feeding me and clothing me and taking care of all of my needs. I remember how she cared for me emotionally. Whenever I was hurt, I'd fall and skin my knee or something, she was there to soothe me. She always encouraged me to do my best, and she took an active interest in the things that I was interested in as well. And she raised me in the Christian faith, making sure that I was raised in the church, that I attended worship, that I went to Sunday school and learned, that I was a part of our church's youth group and went on mission trips and so much more. I also remember some of the mom rules that she had for me and my sister that we had to obey. Did any of you have mom rules or do you remember? Yeah, I know, I, I know. Well, here are some of my mom's rules. Number one, don't talk back to grown-ups. Always tell the truth. Never say shut up, that was a big one with my mom, or use God's name in vain. I had to do my chores and homework every day, and I had to be home by curfew. You probably had some rules that were expected of you, too, and that you had to obey. Mom rules make us, they're made for us for a good reason, because our moms want to keep us safe. They want to keep us from making stupid mistakes in life, and they want us to be good moral people. But like every kid, including me, you probably tested your mom rules from time to time, even breaking them maybe on one or more occasions. I rarely got spanked growing up. My mom and dad didn't really spank. That wasn't their method. My mom and dad preferred the old go to your room and think long and hard about what you've done and then we'll come and give you a good talking to. I hated those talks. I might have rather been spanked actually. But I share that with you today because we're continuing our series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And throughout these chapters from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is teaching us what the kingdom of God looks like. You'll remember in week one, we looked at the Beatitudes, and we learned that God's kingdom often seems upside down and backwards to what we normally observe or experience or get taught in our culture. I mean, being poor, grieving, getting persecuted are not typically things that make us feel very blessed, right? But Jesus says we are. Last week, we learned that Jesus expects his followers to be salt and light in the world, that we are to flavor our culture with God's kingdom living, and we are to illuminate our otherwise dark world 
with the light of Jesus Christ. How we live our lives, <coughs> excuse me, is meant to positively influence the world. And in today's scripture, Jesus teaches on the role of the law and the prophets as he addresses some of his critics who have begun to show up wherever he goes. <coughs> Excuse me. Time out for just a sec. He begins to teach on the reasons that we are to be obedient and it is going to lay the foundation for the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so today I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. You can follow along in, the Bible, in your Bible if you brought one with you, or you can use the Pew Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So up to this point in his sermon, Jesus had been talking about what kind of character that is blessed and valued in God's kingdom, and how believers are to influence the world. And then beginning in verse 17, he begins to explain how these teachings relate to the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, this had been a subject of growing concern with the religious leaders. They'd seen Jesus heal a man's hand that was withered on the Sabbath. They'd seen Jesus' disciples pick some grain on the Sabbath and eat it. And both of those things violated the Jewish law as it was taught by the Pharisees. And they followed the law of Moses more strictly and carefully than anyone else. Now, of course, they weren't perfect in obeying the law of Moses. No human is able to do that. That's why Jesus came but they came closer than anyone else did, even if it was often a hypocritical, outward-only adherence that was meant to be a show for other people to elevate their status to improve their outward appearance. The religious law, the law of Moses, it wasn't just part of the Jewish faith. It was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. It was the foundation of the faith. And the orthodox, the orthodoxy of every teacher was measured by their adherence to the law of Moses. Just like Christians today measure the orthodoxy of a church by its teachings on the Trinity or salvation by grace, who Jesus is and the meaning of his death and resurrection, 
A faithful Jew would measure a teacher or a rabbi's orthodoxy by his adherence to the law. To abandon the law of Moses was to be a heretic. And up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, the religious leaders haven't heard Jesus say anything about the law. And in their minds, this is absolutely the most essential measuring stick of all for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they're listening. They're listening carefully to figure out where Jesus stands with the law of Moses. Now, we might hear Jesus' first sentence and think that he is allaying the fears of the Pharisees. But he didn't. What Jesus said there was controversial. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, what? Who do you think you are, Jesus? No one is able to abolish the law. It was given to us by God himself through Moses. No one can abolish a law that God has given. Oh, you might decide whether you're going to follow it or not follow it. But not following one of God's laws does not make that law of God null and void. It is still God's law. It's, it's like when a judge makes a ruling in a court case today. That ruling is based on the law as it is written and on all the legal precedents that has come before. A judge can't sit on his or her bench and just make up new laws as they go along. They cannot abolish laws that are already on the books and make up new ones. And yet, Jesus is teaching with an authority here that no one had ever taught with before. He goes on to say, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And again, this is a huge claim that Jesus is making. He is saying that everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, everything that they say, everything that they point to, everything that they foreshadow is fulfilled in him. Take, for example, the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. You remember there were laws about offering sacrifices of bulls, goats, lambs, and doves, offering them to God to atone for our sins. Why don't we have to do any of those anymore? Well, all of these were pointing to Christ, and they found their fulfillment in him. We don't kill a Passover lamb anymore and put the blood on the doorposts of our house, not because Jesus abolished the Passover lamb, but because he fulfilled that requirement of God. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. And by dying on the cross, he paid the debt for our sins once and for all. The ceremonial laws weren't abolished by Jesus. They were fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus also fulfilled the moral laws of God. Laws like don't steal, don't covet, 
Don't break the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. The laws that teach us how God wants to live in relationship with God and with each other. These two were given to Moses in what we call the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. And in these few verses from Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus is setting up the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. He'll begin to clarify what God meant all along when he gave the moral law to Moses. Over and over, we're going to hear in this next section of the sermon, Jesus say these words, you have heard it said long ago, something like, thou shalt not murder. But I say, and then he will clarify how God intended for a moral law to be obeyed from the very beginning. Teaching on that begins next Sunday, so you're absolutely going to want to be here to hear us continue through this sermon together. Jesus speaks here with authority because Jesus has authority. Jesus relates to the law as only God can relate to the law. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of mankind. He is the author of the law. He is the one who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The religious leaders are standing face to face with the author of the law that they claim to love so much. And they hated him. You see, the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law so badly that they actually ran the risk of nullifying it. And so Jesus was setting right again what had become so messed up by the religious system of the Pharisees. Jesus said, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He is saying, I am not nullifying the law. I am not lowering the bar. In fact, I'm about to raise it. He said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I want to talk about three things. And the first is the importance of Scripture. Both Jesus and the writer of Matthew's gospel plays, place great emphasis on the importance of Scripture. Scripture is the Word of God written down and recorded by God-inspired human beings. Jesus and Matthew view it as having authority in our lives. It's not simply the product of human imagination or a book that's filled with antiquated sayings from a time long ago. Matthew takes great care to show how Jesus fit in to the Hebrew Scriptures. Over and over again, more than any of the other gospel writers, Matthew quotes passages from the Hebrew Scriptures and then he demonstrates how Jesus has fulfilled those scriptures. Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah 
and that the scriptures have pointed to him all along. Now, sometimes well-meaning Christians try and dismiss or diminish the Old Testament as not really having much relevance or importance in our lives anymore. They may not believe that it has the same authority for us as the New Testament does. But Jesus certainly didn't believe that. Jesus quotes the Hebrew Scriptures a lot, and he said that heaven and earth would pass away before one little letter or one little stroke of the law would ever be erased. I know that one thing that I came to understand when I first took disciple Bible study was that it is impossible to even understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Because God's law will not be abolished or pass away until every single letter is accomplished, Jesus warns against relaxing the law. He warns against teaching others to relax the law. And if legalism is a problem in the church, lawlessness is just as big of a problem. God didn't give us the law to mess with our lives, to make us miserable. He gave us the law as a way for us to live so that we can live a blessed life, a happy life. God's laws are really like the guardrails that have been given to us to keep us from running off the road, from crashing and burning. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus set the bar of righteousness incredibly high. At the last Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, the gold medalist in the high jump was Canadian Derek Druin, who, by the way, competed on the track and field team for Indiana University, my alma mater, go IU. And to win the gold, Derek jumped an incredible, get this, seven feet nine inches. (laughs) I mean, it's like Jesus is setting the bar at eight feet and then saying, anyone that doesn't jump higher than Derek Druin will never enter the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus' statement must have blown the disciples away. No one was considered more righteous than the Pharisees in his day. I mean, they had a list of 248 regulations that they had to do and a list of 365 prohibitions that they could not do. And every single one of them had to be meticulously obeyed for someone to be righteousness. That is 613 do's and don'ts, my friends. Can you imagine trying to keep that? Now, the Pharisees might have been the very first people to admit that they couldn't keep all of those laws perfectly all of the time, but they sure did work awfully hard at trying. And so the question becomes, how much does it take? How much righteousness does it take to exceed that of the Pharisees? I mean, do I have to keep all 613 of those laws perfectly all of the time? Are there maybe some laws that I don't even know about that I have to keep? How high do I have to jump? Eight feet? Ten feet? Twenty feet? Jesus isn't trying to demoralize us or cause us to despair of ever being able to enter the kingdom. 
Jesus isn't pointing to heaven's standard of righteousness and saying, you better reach that standard. He's pointing to heaven's standard of righteousness and saying, I came to ensure that you reach that standard. I came to enable your righteousness to exceed the Pharisees' inadequate level of righteousness. So yes, we despair of ever being righteous enough in our own strength, but we also don't despair because Jesus makes us righteous in us in his strength to enter the kingdom of God. He came to fulfill the law. The second thing we learn from this is that Jesus isn't looking for an external obedience to the law. As we just learned, the Pharisees worked awfully hard at that, but not one of them could ever perfectly keep the law. Oh, the Pharisees came close, but what they lacked more than anything was the internal aspect of the law. They had the external pretty good, but they lacked the inside. The prophet Jeremiah, in the 31st chapter of that book, gives us a little bit of a peek into what God is looking for. Jeremiah writes, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God is going to write his law in our minds and in our hearts. We will internalize the law of God. Jesus had the perfect embodiment of God's law lived out in the life of a human being. And although he followed all of the laws of God, he did not simply regurgitate them, repeating them externally. No, instead, fulfilling the law, Jesus sometimes transcended the law, showing us what it means to obey the law, not for the law's sake alone, but because the law mediates the will of God, showing us God's love, his mercy, and his grace toward people. Jesus said later in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without rejecting the former. No longer will we need to memorize and obey all 613 rules. Through the new covenant, God will write them on our hearts so that we will want to obey them. And so God was never about all the rules. The rules were, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, they were our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. 
Now, some of us, when we think about God, we might think of God as a God of judgment, a God of rules and regulations, a God who is just waiting for us to mess up so we can put the hammer down on us. But what God has always wanted from us is a real, authentic, loving relationship. What God cares about more than outward obedience to the law is an inward obedience that works itself out because of love. Jesus came to reignite that relational, internal intention of the law. God wants to write it on our hearts. And the trouble with the Pharisees' efforts at being righteous was that they weren't really righteous at all, at least not in the way that God defines righteous. They hadn't set the bar at 7-9. They had set the bar much lower than that, but they had marked it like it was 7-9. They faked the numbers. You see, the bar they set wasn't really righteous because their hearts were filled with evil and hypocrisy and sin, not mercy and grace and love. They wanted to look like they were righteous. They wanted to stand on that podium and receive the gold medal, but they never concerned themselves with being righteous on the inside where it counts according to God. The Pharisees' righteousness wasn't real. It wasn't relational. And Jesus didn't hang out very much with religious people, did he? Most of the, that crowd were fakes and hypocrites. They were just trying to make other people believe that they had their lives all put together. Instead, Jesus hung out with liars, cheaters, prostitutes, thieves, but after they were around Jesus for a little while, their hearts began to change. The Holy Spirit was going to work on their insides, and their righteousness became a real and authentic righteousness through faith in Jesus. And that's something that the Spirit wants to do inside of each of us, too. He works on us in a patient, loving way to help us repent of our sin so that we can be free from it. He helps us live righteously, creating the desire in us, reigniting the desire to live in relationship with the living God, the one who created us, the one who redeemed us and restores us. And through God, we are able to live righteously. Not perfectly, not completely. We're always a work in process, but the kind of righteousness has this over the Pharisees' righteousness. It's real. It's relational. Jesus isn't pointing to the high jump bar and saying jump higher. Jesus is more like our personal trainer working with us and working in us to help us live life the way God intended it to be lived. And so what would happen if we began to love God and love others, not because we have to, but because we want to? What would happen in our lives if we studied God's word, if we prayed, if we served other people, if we worshiped, if we practiced generosity, not out of obligation, but out of gratefulness to God? How would our spiritual lives begin to grow? My, oh, my.
I can only imagine. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for giving us the law. And Jesus, we thank you for coming to fulfill a law that we could never keep. But through faith in you, you give us your righteousness as if it belongs to us. And you take our sin as if it belongs to you. Fulfilling all of the law and all of the prophets as they had pointed to you throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Jesus, help us to grab hold of what you offer. Write it on our hearts and give us a burning desire to serve you, to love you, to obey you out of love and mercy and grace and not out of, um, not out of an obligation that is empty and hollow. This we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>